Ice Show. Hello, everybody. I'm Ivan Skolarsep, and it is match day. In CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, the first place U.S. men's national team is back in action. And they're in Kingston, Jamaica to take on the reggae boys. And if it feels like they just played Jamaica, it's because they, they literally just played them a month ago. Also, this is the fourth time they've played them in eight months. So there's some familiarity there. Although be careful. As much as the U.S. has won three straight. It's a little different Jamaica team that they're facing. Mikel Antonio should be in the lineup. Leon Bailey should be in the lineup. So it's going to be a little trickier challenge for the U.S. However, as we know, they're riding high coming off of the big Dos Acero win on Friday against Mexico. And Greg Berhalter's team has to be feeling pretty good about themselves. They're on top of the group at the halfway point of the octagonal and they have a real chance here to take that other big step towards qualifying for the World Cup and as big as the win was on Friday it's not going to matter if you turn around and lose to Jamaica all of a sudden all the momentum all the all the good feelings all the vibes i mean look it doesn't go away you still beat your arch rival and you beat them convincingly that's not that will that's there that's in the books but the advantage that you gained in the standings will go away then if you lose to Jamaica. Now, I'm sure that some people say, hey, you know, look, if they get a point in Jamaica, you'll be happy. But no, this team has set a new bar for itself now with that performance against Mexico. People are going to expect a lot more from this group now because, look, if you can dominate Mexico, I don't care where it is. If you can dominate Mexico, you should be beating Jamaica. And it's not going to be easy. It's not It's not necessarily a gimme or a pushover. It's going to be, the, for me, I'm pretty sure it's going to be the toughest of the four meetings they've had with Jamaica, but they're expected to win. Even with the players they're missing, they're expected to win. And don't go crying for Greg Berhalter because of Weston McKinney and Miles Robinson being suspended because there's still plenty of talent on this lineup. The potential, the projected lineup we should see in Kingston. And I got to be honest, I had a little FOMO uh, of not being in Kingston for this one, for this qualifier. I, I've been to a few. I've been to I've been to Kingston twice before for qualifiers, and I wouldn't have minded being there this time around. But no, I'll be in New York City with the CBS Sports team as we provide coverage that CBS Sports Paramount Plus will be showing USA Jamaica. So if you want to watch it in English, you should subscribe to Paramount Plus. You already should be subscribed to Paramount Plus, to be clear, because... You got Champions League, CONCACAF qualifiers, Serie A, NWSL, you name it. There's a long list and a growing list of soccer properties. So you're getting bang for your buck if you're a soccer fan for Paramount+. Plus. I'm not even going to get into all the other programming. But anyway, this isn't a commercial for Paramount+. Plus. I'm just letting you know where you should be watching because there's going to be a long show on Tuesday covering qualifiers in CONCACAF from 4.30 p.m. Eastern, pregame show, all the way through to the end of Canada, Mexico. It's going to be a hell of a day. As far as the U.S. men's national team, I'm very, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this game because Greg Berhalter's had to deal with missing players, right? I mean, obviously, Giorena has been out since the first game. So Junior Desk gets injured and isn't available here in November. You know, the whole John Brooks situation. 
and he's had to kind of roll with the punches. And now, you know, obviously Christian Pulisic, ha- you know, hasn't returned to the starting lineup yet. I don't think he's going to return to the starting lineup for this game. So you take all those pieces into account, and now McKinney and Miles Robinson suspended and are not available for this match. So it just shows you. I mean, you're talking about almost half of a half of the the lineup you would have called the first choice U.S. lineup when qualifying began will not be on the field when the when this game starts. I mean, and obviously Pulisic's still a bit of a coin toss. Greg, Ber- Greg Berhalter was playing a little coy. Uh, if you read between the lines, it sounds like Pulisic will not start. It sounds like, you know what? It worked him coming off the bench and being the super sub. Let's do that again. You're playing Jamaica, very physical team. Do you really want to run Pulisic through the ringer? On the road in CONCACAF, risk him getting injured, trying to have him play 70-plus minutes. Or do you have him give you 30 minutes, 35 minutes to finish off a game or to break a game open? And that's a safe bet, and I think that's the right bet. And I, one, one of the things that was interesting about Berhalter's uh, press conference on Monday was him basically saying, acknowledging that, you know what, we could have technically started Pulisic against Mexico, but we didn't want to. And I think that was him pretty much saying, listen, if I wanted to be desperate, I could have put him in. But I did the smart thing, and I brought him on as a sub. And obviously it worked. The man in the mirror scored the goal. So it worked perfectly. And I think he'll play it safe again. And bring Pulisic off the bench. The only lineup unveiling that we saw, the only players that we we have basically confirmed will start on Tuesday are Zach Steffen in goal again for Matt Turner. And I was a little up in the air on this one. I thought maybe Turner would come back in. But you know what? Stefan had a really good game. And if if you're looking at that game and say, look, he was great in this game. Why take him out? All things being equal before all this, before the injury in the Nations League final, before, uh, before that happened, before the back spasms and the COVID in September, he was your number one. Unquestioned number one. Then Matt Turner comes along and and his, you know, his outstanding year gets even better. He has an amazing Gold Cup and he kind of grabs the starting role to make it a discussion, to make it a conversation. Who starts? It's pretty clear Greg Berhalter prefers Zach Steffen. And he's not going to hold it against Zach Steffen that he's not playing on the one of the best teams in the world behind one of the best goalkeepers in the world. When they're in camp and matched up against each other, when he sizes them up, compares and contrasts, he sees Steffen being a better option to start. And it's kind of funny to me to see some people really get a little up in arms about it. Nah, no, obviously, if it's a New England Revolution fan, understandable. Matt Turner, you love him. You think he should be your starter. And he's a perfectly fine starter. If he could start, he, I think he would do well. But Zach Steffen is not chopped liver. I feel like I said this last episode. Let's be clear. If Zach Steffen was in MLS right now, He'd be, if not the best goalkeeper, he, you know, he'd be right there. He'd be, he was the best goalkeeper before he went to Manchester City. So he is on that high level. And we'll see what he does against Jamaica. A challenging game. I think there's going to be some chances that will come, come at him. The U.S. defense will not have Miles Robinson, who obviously, when you want to talk about a one-on-one defender, and as much as he did not have his best game against Mexico, he still made some plays. He still made some good defensive plays. He can still bail you out of some things. And now, But now he's out. 
We know Zimmerman. We know Walker Zimmerman is starting. He actually spoke to the media. He was the player available on the day before the game. And it's pretty much 99% of the time that person starts. And actually, Berhalter acknowledged that and said, look, you know, Zimmerman starts, and it's either Chris Richards or Mark McKenzie. And that's, that's going to be the question, right? Who goes? Is it Richards? Who's obviously, you know, having another good season in Germany. He's starting regularly for Hoffenheim. Or do you go with Mark McKenzie, who has not been playing regularly in Belgium for Genk? One game in the past month, one start in the past month. But who has played in some big games for the U.S.? Started in the Nations League final. Started in the qualifier in Honduras. So he has started in some big games. And I know the thing that stands out between the two is the fact that Richards has came into the camp Starting consistently, McKenzie did not. And along those lines, I actually asked Greg Berhalter about that dynamic, about when you bring in players or when you have players who come in who aren't playing regularly for their clubs. How do you kind of evaluate them? How do you come to the conclusion that, listen, even though he's not playing, we're going to bring him in because we think he can help us? Like, what, what goes into that? What goes into that equation? How much is it? help that you can get, you know, diagnostic uh, information on these players. And that's the thing that's crazy that I don't think enough people think about. And even not even me, like I I hadn't really thought about it, but I obviously I asked Berhalter on Monday and he, he, you know, he got into it a little bit discussing that. The fact that even though a player is not playing regularly, a team, a national team can still track how that player is doing in training. Clubs make that information available to the national teams. And I asked, and one of the players I mentioned was Yunus Musa, who is, who hasn't been starting for Valencia, has only been coming off the bench, getting some minutes here and there. So, what was the challenge in terms of picking your line, picking up, picking the roster, having a player like Yunus Musa, who obviously was great in October, but who hasn't been playing? And how do you kind of evaluate that? How do you how do you come reach to the conclusion that you know what, even though he hasn't been playing, we're still bringing him in? And is it a gamble? And, and Berhalter was pretty forthcoming in pointing out that, you, as an example, Yunus Moose is a player that they were able to track him, track his data, his trainings at Valencia, the level that he trains at Valencia, the, you know, the, the fact that physically all signs point to him being ready, pointed to him being ready to be a factor in November, ready to be able to handle the workload in November, even though he hadn't been playing matches for Valencia. But if you're training at a high level, if you're train, training with a team that's pushing you and keeping you at a good level physically, that then that can kind of help offset the fact that you aren't playing regularly. And, and that's just an interesting thing that, you know, 20 years ago, if you're a national team coach and a player's not playing, what do you go by? You didn't have data getting sent to you about an entire a player's entire kind of training regimen and, and, and how they're testing and how phys- how they're holding up physically. I mean, it's just, you know, it just shows you technology is a beautiful thing. And it definitely, you know, Berhalter did shed some light on it. I thought it was I thought it was very interesting. And it definitely puts a new perspective on that whole idea. Player X isn't playing games. Why should he come in? Or you know, play, you know, player X is training well, even though he's not starting. He's training well. He's at a high level physically. He's ready to go. He's not going to struggle when he comes here. Or you potentially go the other way and say, look, here we go. We see the test. We see the level that this player is at. And even though he's playing, 
Maybe physically something's going on here. Maybe physically he's not up to his peak. Maybe something's going on here and maybe we shouldn't bring him in. And Berhalter didn't give an example that way. He didn't go the other way on it. But obviously if it works one way, it can work the other way. So we've gotten off on a little tangent here, but getting pulling it back in, we were talking about Mark uh, Mark McKenzie. Now he's at he's at Gank, and maybe he's training well at Gank. So he absolutely could still be an option to start, and that'd be an interesting touch, right? If if McKen if Mark McKenzie starts against Jamaica, Mark McKenzie, his family's background is Jamaican. Uh, you know, he you could also have Tim Weah obviously start should start uh and his obviously his mother's jamaican so there's already these ties so that'll be interesting and obviously you're not you know greg berhalter isn't going to start mckenzie because his family's jamaican i'm just making the point that it's interesting he's gonna be little interesting side stories on it for me i'm starting chris richards because i just think in terms of speed in terms of uh air, you know aerial ability obviously zimmerman gives you the aerial game as well but Richards with the speed that he has to cover ground, which is what Robinson, Miles Robinson gives you when he's there. Richards can help give you that. And, that, and McKenzie can too, to, you know, to a degree. He's, it's, he's athletic as well. But for me, I want to see Richards. I think Richards is a better passer. I think he's better in the air. Absolutely. But Berhalter's still going to have to make that decision. Do I go with Richards, who only has one qualifier under his belt? Or do I go with McKenzie, who's, who's played more matches? And has played a road qualifier before. Started in Honduras. So we'll see which way he goes. Uh, Berhalter goes. And another decision, another big decision Berhalter has to make is in central midfield and replacing Weston McKinney. And again, Weston McKinney, another outstanding performance against Mexico. We talked about it last episode. Not an easy player to replace. Because he is the definition of a box-to-box midfielder because he can get back and do all kinds of work in the midfield and then he gets into that attack. He gets into that final third, makes things happen, creates goals, scores goals, sets up goals. So who do you have that can do that? And the player, that, the players that Berhalter pointed to as being potential replacements are Cal Nacosta, Gianluca Busio, as Sebastian Lejet. Now, as far as the three go, obviously Acosta is the most defensive of the three, and you're asking yourself, well, do you really need to be that defensive of a midfield against Jamaica, or do you want to be proactive and go and go with a little bit more creativity there? You have Lejet. Or do you go Busio, who can give you a bit of both, and who's played at a high level in Italy with, Ven- with Venezia? He's been starting. He's been playing well. He had a nice cameo against Costa Rica in October in the qualifier. For me, he's your guy. However, I do think Acosta's low-key is the favorite, I think, to start. Just because it's a a bit of a safer decision for Berhalter just because you lock down the defensive side of things. You don't allow allow Jamaica to create through the middle. Even though, look, I think if you got Bailey, if you have Leon Bailey on one wing... Yeah, potentially, you know, Bobby Reed, whether Bobby Reed sets up centrally or he sets up wide left. Potentially have Kamar Roof working on the left. Jamaica's going to have some wing options, so I don't know if they're necessarily going to... I don't know if you're going to need two defensive-minded midfielders in the middle. I just don't think you're going to need that against Jamaica. So that's why, for me, I would go Busio. And I know people will go crazy if it's Sebastian Lejet. 
what I'd say to that is, look, Sebastian Legette has played Jamaica before. He's done well against Jamaica before. I feel like he has the quality and with what Jamaica has in the midfield. I think Sebastian Legette can absolutely make some things happen there. But me, personally, I'm going Busio. I think Busio, it's Busio's time to get that opportunity to start in a game like this. And I think that is the more ambitious decision. But, of course, do you blame Berhalter if he goes with a bit of a safer decision? In Kellen Acosta. And we'll see. We'll see which way he goes. Obviously, if he does go with Acosta, and then you have Acosta, Tim, uh, Tyler Adams, and Yunus Musa in your midfield, you're definitely going to want Musa to be more involved in the attack. Uh, and he's shown he can do that. He's shown he can do that. But me personally, I want to see Busio. I've been saying it for a while. I said it in October. I'm saying it again now. I want to see Busio. He's playing at a high level. He deserves a chance. So we'll see. We'll see if he gets it. Now, the U.S., in terms of what they're going to face, they're facing a Jamaica team. It clearly has some attacking threats, but they also have some flaws. They, their, def- their defense is pretty terrible, I got to say. Adrian Mariapa is their captain, and he's he doesn't have a club right now. And he has been pretty terrible in qualifying. He's gotten beaten pretty left and right. He was, he was terrible against the U.S. in Austin in October. They do have Damian Lowe, who I think is a pretty solid center back. He, he had a very good goal cup. I think they're pretty vulnerable at right back if you go O'Neal Fisher. I think, Cam- I think Kamar Lawrence is their best defender, and even he struggled against the U.S. in, in October. Paul Ariola made him look, uh, you know, made him look silly. He could have drawn a red card on on uh, Lawrence two minutes into the game in October. So if you're the U.S., you you should be able to create chances against this Jamaican defense. And I think the front three for the U.S. is going to be Brendan Aronson, Ricardo Pepe, Tim Way once again. Same front three, no reason to change it. And Aronson and Pepe, in terms of the attack against Mexico, didn't really have the best of games. What they did do well is press. What they did do well is put in the the defensive work to help the collective pressing game really cause problems for Mexico, right? So you think, you'd like to think they're going to do that again, and I think they'll have even more success with that in terms of creating turnovers in the, in, in their third to create quick hit scoring chances, which is really kind of, you know, the, the, the name of the game when, when you're playing that style. And then you have Wea. I mean, I rewatched some of that U.S.-Mexico game, and Wea was, was work. He was cooking Mexico. Tim Wea was on one. I mean, it looked even, his performance looked even better the second time around, I got to be honest with you. And I already thought he was the man of the match the first time I watched it. So chances will be there for the U.S. And if they finish them early, they can put this game away. And that's one of, if one of the very few knocks you could have on the first uh, on the Mexico game was the fact that in the first half, the U.S. could have been a lot cleaner, a lot more effective in the in the in the final third. And things got better there, obviously, in the second half when they scored the two goals. But can they do it in the first half? Set that tone early, take Jamaica out of the game early, and just control things and just lock it down. They should be able to do that. And I do think we're going to see some bounce back performances. I don't think Pulisic starts, so I think Aronson starts. And I think Aronson's going to do some things. I think this is a perfect bounce back game for him. And we've seen it before. I remember uh, El Salvador in the very first qualifier. He struggled. He had a rough game. It was his first experience in qualifying, in road qualifying. He was not the only player who struggled on that day. But what did he do? He came back, picked himself up, and against Canada, he goes and scores a goal. 
has a good game. So I think he's that he has shown to be that kind of player that can bounce back from a disappointing performance. And even though I'm not going to sit here and say Aronson was bad against Mexico, but I do see him having more of an impact, especially in the attack against Jamaica. And then, of course, Ricardo Pepe, let's not forget, he scored two goals against Mex- against Jamaica in October. We know he probably wasn't happy about not getting that goal against Mexico in, uh, on Friday. I'm sure he went into that game thinking, what will I do if I score against Mexico? He didn't get it this time. But you have to like Ricardo Pepe's chances against whoever Jamaica starts in central defense. Especially if they start Mariapa again. And Mariapa is the captain. So... He probably starts. And when you have Damian Lowe having to kind of keep an eye on the Aronson and Weah and potentially Pulisic in the second half or even in the lineup, Damian Lowe has a lot to do because, you know, he's one of the competent defenders that they have. So, I mean, I really think Aronson and Pepe are going to bounce back and both have good games in this one. But we'll see. Uh, we'll see if they can get the job done. Obviously, if the U.S. wins this game, that really push, pushes them that much closer. And let's not forget now the other teams, the teams that are right behind them in the standings play each other. So you're going to, if you win, you are going to open up a gap on somebody. If you beat Jamaica on the road, either you're getting points on Canada or you're getting points on Mexico or you're getting points on both. If they tie in Edmonton. So we'll see what happens. It should be a good one. Mikel Antonio, though, he's a threat. He's a handful. He's not going to be easy to stop. What did he do? He comes off the bench for Jamaica against El Salvador and scores a goal right off the bat. Of course, Alex Roldan, Seattle Sounders standout, scores the late equalizer for El Salvador, salvages the point for El Salvador. And, and Jamaica, obviously, they, that was a gut punch for Jamaica because if they would have grabbed three points there, then you know things are looking a little better there. But Antonio and Bailey are both handfuls, and we'll see what happens there. That's one of the one of the matchups I'm looking forward to. If it happens, if Bailey deploys on the right wing, is Anthony Robinson against Leon Bailey? That one, I'm going to get the popcorn for that one because that one's going to be a fun one. Absolutely. So it should be a good game, but the U.S. absolutely should win comfortably. I'm talking 3-0, maybe 3-1. Maybe you give Antonio one because, look, Mikel Antonio is that good. He is a handful. He is dangerous. But the U.S. should win again, fourth time in a row against Jamaica in 2021. Can't take it for granted, but when you look, when you see how good they looked on Friday, it's kind of hard to see them dropping that, dropping that far down after that. Now, moving on into CONCACAF, the rest of CONCACAF qualifying, you have Canada and Mexico playing in the Canadian uh, Snow Classico. Uh, the snow and, and the freezing temperatures have already hit Edmonton and the Mexicans are already shivering. And all of a sudden, this big match is, uh, you know what? It's shaping up to be a Canadian win. And not to say we should assume that Mexico is going to crumble in this cold weather. But I have a feeling Canada is going to be up for it. And Canada is not going to have a problem with that cold weather at all. As Bane said in the Batman movie, they were, the Canadians were they were they were born in that cold. They were raised in that cold. They know the cold there. Mexico definitely not. And I thought it was funny just kind of watching some of the reports from some of the uh, the the Spanish outlets 
reporting from Edmonton and they were like super bundled up and you're like, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, they're not used to the cold. So then you, and so the players are, they're, they're going to have a challenge. And, and aside from the weather, Canada's a good team. Canada is stacked. Canada's dangerous. Bonzo Davies, Jonathan David, Tejon Buchanan, Stephen Ustakio, Jonathan Osorio, Kyle Laren. They've got weapons. And John Herdman, to his credit, he's been pulling the strings. They haven't lost a match. They had a very professional 1-0 win against Costa Rica on Friday, getting those three points. Nice goal by Jonathan David. So they're going, they're coming into this match on Tuesday with all the confidence. And that's the nightcap, by the way, of the CONCACAF schedule, the four octagonal matches. Canada, Mexico is the last match. It's at, I believe it's at 9 p.m. Again, also, shoring of Paramount Plus. And I don't care if you're a U.S. fan or not a U.S. fan, if you're a you need to watch this game. Because this is going to be a good game. And, and I, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to speak for American fans, but obviously I don't feel like American fans hate Canadian the Canadian team. I don't think there's an animosity there. So if anything, I think U.S. fans are going to root for Canada. Who doesn't want to see Mexico drop down to third or potentially be in danger of dropping to fourth? I don't know if they can drop all the way to fourth even if, if Panama wins, but they'll be in a little bit of trouble. They'll go. They'll suddenly go from being undefeated and in first place in the octagonal to slipping to at least third if they lose. And folks in Mexico are not happy with Mexico. They're not with the Mexican national team. They're not happy with Tata Martino. Tata is in a bit of a you know he's a bit of a pressure cooker. And we know it comes with the territory. It comes with the Mexico job. It, it, anytime adversity hits, anytime the team starts to struggle, the knives come out. The Mexican national team coaching job is one of those jobs. And and look, obviously that you get that around the world, right? And I know some people will say, oh, not the U.S. The U.S. doesn't, you know, U.S. coach doesn't get pressure. That's a whole other discussion. But Mexico, we've seen over the years, for decades, it happens all the time. Coaches get chewed up and spit out. Mexico just, Mexico literally just lost their, they had just suffered their first loss of the octagonal. They were in first place. Before Friday, they're technically tied for first place now. Obviously, the U.S. has the tiebreaker on on goals. But Mexico's tied on points with with the U.S. at the top of the standings. And someone literally asked Tata Martino in the press conference on Monday if he's going to resign. I mean, really? Wow. I mean, it's just, you know what it comes down to? There there is definitely a, a, there's an arrogance in some segments of the of the Mexican fan base in the Mexican media, this just kind of a just sense of of like they they feel like they have to be in for they have to be the best team in the region. It's their birthright, and if they're not, something is wrong. Someone's doing something wrong. Someone's not doing the job that they're supposed to do. And that's such a cop out because you know what? When it comes down to it, no, it's not about that. It's not about Tata pulling the wrong strings. It's not Tata Martino's fault that Hector Herrera is not in good form at Atletico Madrid. It's not his fault. Tecatito Corona is not in good form with his club team. It's not his fault that Raul Jimenez has just come back from a year away with a fractured skull. And clearly hasn't looked like the old Raul Jimenez, at least in terms of with the Mexican team. 
And I'm not trying to cop please from Tata Martino. Trust me, I'm not. I'm not that guy. I'm not. I'm not in the Tata Martino fan club. I mean, I respect the guy, but you know what? He has his faults as a coach. But it is funny. We've seen this, man. We've seen this for 20 years. I've seen it for 20 years. Mexican coaches get chewed up and spit out by by fans, by media, who have these unrealistic expectations about Mexico and live in denial about Mexico. Player and the players do it too. I just I just watched the Irving Lozano interview where he honestly said that you know what we 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 play the better soccer. The U.S. just you know they 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 make these plays and and then we lose. And it's like, buddy, you were outplayed. What game were you watching? That's denial right there. I mean, look, he's a young guy. Like you know, he he's he's confident. He he even remembers the chance that he should have scored on, and Zach Steffen stopped it. So, and I'm sure in his, I'm sure in his mind, he's like, you know what, we should have won that game. So fair fair play to him, but it's not real. That's not reality. The reality is this current U.S. team is just better than Mexico, deeper than Mexico. And you can say what you want about oh, they were missing their center backs and and what have you. Do we want to run down the list of the players the U.S. was missing against uh, against Mexico? Gio Reyna, Serginho uh, Dest, John Brooks not in, in the picture right now. John Brooks, who's better than any center back that Mexico has. So it, I, I just find it interesting. But let's not go throwing dirt on Mexico and saying they're, they're lost, but they're in a bad way. And Tata's in a tough spot because he has big-name players who aren't playing well. But he can't bench them. I mean, in some instances, you say, uh, well, why not? But, you know, Hector Herrera is a big name. He was the player of the tournament in the Gold Cup. How do you sit him? Tecatito Corona, same thing. Raul Jimenez, same thing. So I'm very interested to see the lineup that Tata puts out there against Canada. Does he just stick with the same guys? And then if they lose, what does he say? Well, look, I played the guys who are the, supposed to be the best guys. So I, look, that's what we're going to see if they lose. We're going to see – and if they lose and Mexico plays the same guys, Tata's going to have to throw them – he's going to throw them under the bus. I'm, I'm calling it right now. He's going to say, look, I played the best guys, and they didn't deliver. At a certain point, you have to deliver. But we'll see. We'll see if Canada can get the job done. They still have to get it done. But between the cold, the more than 50,000 fans expected at the stadium in Edmonton, everything is in Canada's favor for their first World Cup qualifying win against Mexico since, I believe, like 1978. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. I mean, that's what, 44 years? No, I was not at that game. I'm not that old, okay? Before anyone says it. I was like four years old at the time, so. But that's going to be a good one. Definitely watch that one, whatever you do. And it's going to be a 9 p.m. start. So, you know, a little late if you're on the East Coast, but you don't want to watch it. And, yes, the last Canadian win over Mexico in World Cup qualifying was in 1978 in Vancouver. Now, there have been draws. 1998, 2002, 2010. They played those three times in Canada, all three draws. Two of those draws in Edmonton, by the way. But to be clear, this is a different Canada team. This team is this team is stacked, dangerous. 
I know I've said it a million times. I'm not sold on their defense, but maybe their defense is a little better than I thought. I'm giving their defense a little, little bit more credit. So that's going to be a good one. You're definitely going to want to watch that one. We also There's also Panama El Salvador. That's another big one. Panama, right, in the picture. If they beat El Salvador at home as they, you know, they were expected to do, they're putting that much pressure on whoever loses between Canada and Mexico or both of them if they draw. And potentially the U.S. Because if, if, if the U.S. loses and Canada and Mexico tie, and, Mex- and Panama wins, all of a sudden, things are super tight in the octagonal heading into the new year. So that one should be a fun one. And then, of course, Canada, uh, Costa Rica against Honduras. Honduras is toast, right? They, they, blowing a two-goal lead to Panama, losing 3-2. I think that's the last nail in the coffin. What are they going to have left? Are they really going to put up a fight going to San Jose against the Costa Rica team that desperately needs points? I don't see it. As much as I respect Bolio Gomez as a coach, I don't think th- I don't think Honduras has it. So Costa Rica, if they win this one, you know it gets them a little closer to the pack. I still don't think Costa Rica has it either. I think they're they've gotten too old. They not enough of their younger generation has stepped in to fill the void and to really kind of keep the continuity and give them the depth that they need. So I think I think at the end of the day, Honduras and Costa Rica are going to fall short. But if Costa Rica wins this game, it makes things interesting. But that's it, talking about CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. Uh, a couple of notes before we wrap up. And again, this is going to be a little bit of a short episode. We've, got, we've had a bunch of episodes. We had an episode on Thursday. We had, an, obviously, a recap episode on Saturday. We're going to have another episode on Wednesday. I want to say Wednesday because that will be the U.S. Re- US Jamaica recap episode. And then we will have an, an actual MLS preview episode and, among other things, episode. for I'm shooting for Friday. And that's not to say we're going to all of a sudden start having three episodes a week, but this week's obviously a little different. But moving on, MLS Awards finalists announced on Tuesday. And no no real surprises. No real surprises when, when, when you talk about the awards announcements and who has been named. Obviously, MVP, everyone wanted to see who was going to be nominated. And look, the voters. I thought the voters did a good job. The five finalists that they've named are pretty strong. Tati Castellanos, Carlos Gill, Hani Mukhtar, Jao Paulo, Daniel Shaloy. Very solid five. All deserving finalists. I'd still say Carlos Gill wins, but we'll see. I mean, I feel like Castellanos had the real strong finish. Hani Mukhtar, obviously, so important to Nashville. We know the folks up in Seattle love some Jao Paulo this year. And if anything, Seattle fans would probably say, hey, Raul Ruiz Diaz should have been there also. But you know what? You don't want two players among the finalists because it splits votes. We've never seen it. I, I mean, it could be misspeaking here, but I don't know if I've ever seen anyone win MVP when, when a teammate of theirs was right in the conversation as well. I could be wrong, but I feel like it, it doesn't help you. Goalkeeper of the year, Andre Blake, Matt Turner, Joe Willis. Some good competition there. I think Turner wins that. Just, you know, the supporter shield is a strong thing. It's going to help, you know, it's going to help him and it's going to help Carter's Gill when you talk about voting for goalkeeper uh, for the awards at the end of the year defender of the year Yamar Gomez Andrade from Seattle Sounders Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman Miles Robinson look he's one of the best defenders in the league no questions asked no question about it but was he necessarily a defender of the year this year in terms of the body of work in MLS play 
I'm sure Atlanta United fans will say, you're crazy. Absolutely, the answer is yes. And of course, as I always say, you can never ask fans of the team if their player should deserve something because it's like their child. Yes, my child is pretty. My child is a cute baby. How dare you say otherwise, right? I get that. But no, look, Miles Robinson has, an, has had an amazing year. A lot of that has been with the national team, and that doesn't count towards MLS Defender of the Year. But it's an interesting one. I mean, for me, Gomez and Zimmerman, it's between those two for Defender of the Year. And you can make a very good case for Gomez. He got my vote. But Zimmerman's right there. And Robinson, you can respect it because he is just so, he's so reliable. If anything, you could argue, yes, maybe you take Robinson for granted because he's so steady, so good consistently that you kind of just, you almost ignore him because you just expect him to be dominant, right? Take it for granted. So I'm not trying to say he's not a good defender, folks, before anyone gets crazy at even the suggestion that he should not be a finalist. I'm just saying I feel like he's been, you know, he's had better seasons. And uh, I don't know. I he, If it's best 11, I'm sure it's usually the way it works is best 11. Whoever the three finalists for defender of the year end up being the best 11. For me, I believe the best 11, you should do a proper formation that most teams play or a lot of, you know, majority teams play. The majority teams do not play three center, three in the back, three center backs. So for me, Gomez and Zimmerman would be your center backs in the best 11, in my opinion. But we'll see who wins defender of the year. Then you have Newcomer of the Year. You have uh, Christian Arango, LAFC striker, who you know played half a season but was just ridiculous uh, scoring goals. He's in there. Ryan Gold from the Whitecaps. Chofis Lopez, San Jose Earthquakes, had a very good season, although you know San Jose is such a bad season. I know you can say, oh, why should that work against him? But that's, a, that's an interesting one. I, I, I'm going to have to look at that Newcomer category again because I, I don't know if I'm sold on all three of those. Definitely Arango, as much as I've always been anti making someone a finalist who's only played half a season, but his half season, pretty good, pretty, pretty good. And then you have young player of the year for players 22 and younger. And the finalists are Ricardo Pepe, Tejon Buchanan, and Julian Araujo. Ricardo Pepe is your winner, folks. We don't really need to discuss it. Tejon Buchanan's a, you know, good candidate as well. And Araujo's had a very good season for LA, but look, LA galaxy did not make the playoffs. So I just don't see him winning an award. He could win humanitarian humanitarian award. He's up for that as well. Uh, Julian Araujo. So maybe he gets that one, but I don't see him getting young player. Then you have comeback player of the year, which again, an award I hate because the idea that players can be nominated because they had a bad year the year before that makes you a comeback candidate. It used to be comeback was about like overcoming a major injury, like, career-threatening injury, and you come back and they're great. That's what it used to be about, but it's kind of gotten diluted, and I've said it a million times. MLS should have most improved player. Forget comeback player, go most improved player. If you go most improved player, Daniel Shaloy is your winner. But that's it. You have coach of the year. Last one uh, I'll touch on. Bruce Arena, Robin Frazier, Brian Schmetzer, three worthy candidates. I feel like Bruce Arena is going to win. Because, look, Sporter Shield, most points in the history of the league, that's that's pretty impressive. But as I said recently in one of the recent episodes, Robin Frazier is my pick because no one, and I mean no one outside of Colorado, had the Rapids winning the West, finishing first in the West. Nobody. Whereas New England was absolutely a contender. I think I had him in my top four. I saw them having a strong year. Maybe not record-setting strong, maybe not supporter shield strong, but very, very strong. The way things usually go with the voting, I think it's pretty. Fair. It's a pretty safe bet. Robin uh, Bruce Arena wins this one. And how do you argue? Record-setting season. 
But that's it. That's it as far as the MLS awards go. And the last thing I'll touch on, NWSL playoffs. The semifinals were this weekend. And we had two upsets. Chicago Red Stars defeated the Portland Thorns 2-0. And the Washington Spirit defeated the Oil Reign. And Trinity Rodman continues her ridiculous rookie season. Amazing rookie season. She scores a goal. Ashley Sanchez, Ashley Sanchez scores a goal. And we get Red Stars and Spirit. In the final in Louisville, for those who missed it, the final was originally going to be in Portland, but it had it was moved to Louisville, and uh, that's an interesting final for sure. Obviously, the Chicago Red Stars were missing. Actually, Red Stars and Thorns were both missing players. Lindsey Horan, Crystal Dunn missing for Portland. Uh, uh, Mal Pugh for the Red Stars. And Red Stars missing a ton of players, actually, heading into the final. So that's going to be an interesting one. Red Stars' spirit. Um, and I definitely want to send out condolences to Bella Bixby, the goalkeeper for the Thorns, who when everyone was watching that game and, and some people would argue, oh, you know, she should have done better on the goals and what have you. Um, she actually came out and, and, and revealed that, you know, her father passed away and, uh, you know, he died by suicide, which obviously that's got to be dev- that's just devastating news. And for, for Bella Bixby to, you know, take that and go play. It's just a reminder that you just never know what people are dealing with when they're playing. And sometimes you look at at somebody and you're like, what's going on? Like, man, you know, why are they aren't playing? And you don't know. You don't know that they're, they could be carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders and you have no idea. But condolences to her. She's obviously an excellent goalkeeper. Uh, Definitely keep your head up. And the Portland Thorns still won a ton of trophies this year. They didn't do the sweep, but the Thorns are the Thorns. They're an amazing team. Obviously they, they've had to do, do some cleanup in the in the wake of the Paul Riley uh, scandal, and I think they really hit it out of the park with the hiring of Karina LeBlanc. I've said that already. I've said it before. I think she's going to do some great things, and now we'll see this final Red Stars Spirit. We'll see who takes that one. Maybe Trinity Rodman with the amazing rookie year finishes it off with a title. That'd be interesting. But I think that's it. That wraps it up for this episode of the SBI Show. We will be back on Wednesday to discuss the U.S.-Jamaica qualifier, all the CONCACAF qualifiers, and we'll start to move ahead and look ahead to what happens beyond the 2021 qualifying uh, schedule. And we'll we'll be able to take stock of where the U.S. men's national team stands, highlights, lowlights, and what to look forward to next year. But uh, definitely that's it. That's it for this episode. And uh, enjoy Tuesday because it's going to be fun. CONCACAF qualifying. It's always fun when your team is in first place, right, U.S. fans? So enjoy that and definitely watch Paramount Plus if you can. And as always, as I say, make sure you check out SBISoccer.com and subscribe if you can. Definitely appreciate it. Thank you to all the subscribers who, who we've had come on board. We had a pretty nice opening week of uh, of subscriptions. We're doing, you know, we're off to a pretty good start. Definitely um, looking to step things up and keep things rolling into the end of the year. And we're definitely going to keep that information coming, keep the articles coming, keep the coverage coming on all things American soccer. But that's all for now. I'm Ivan Scalarset. This is the SBI Show. <laughs>